Welcome to episode 48 of Battle Rhythm, the Canadian podcast that tells you what you need to know on security and defense. I'm Stephanie Van Hladke, and my co-host, Steve Sademan, will join me shortly. In today's episode, we talk about the external review into sexual misconduct in the military and the new chief of professional conduct and culture, as well as the latest requests for military assistance to support the country's pandemic response efforts. Our feature interview is with Lieutenant Colonel McLeod, the former commander of Air Task Force Romania. At the very end of the episode, we have Steve's R&R segment. Thank you for listening. So Stephanie, how are you doing these days? Fantastic, Steve. I'm officially done with grading, which Uh, is a tremendous feeling. And now I get to look forward to a dissertation defense and two more PhD students finishing up this summer. So it's a great time. And as you know, we have a CDSN-sponsored workshop on the Total Defense Force Thursday, Friday, which I'm co-organizing with Dr. Irina Goldenberg from DGMPRA and Professor Joachim Bernsum from the University of Gothenburg in, in Sweden. And uh, what's on your mind these days, Steve? We're recording this on May 4th, so uh, please go ahead and make the Star Wars reference because I won't. <laughs> well, I think we've made sufficient progress that you're aware that it's May the 4th and what that means for all of us. Uh, <laughs> what that means for me is that there's a new Star Wars series that's on Disney Plus, I think right now, at least that will we'll be tonight. The Bad Batch, which is a animated show based on five, I think five, clones from the Clone Wars series that were, uh, well, Bad Batch. They, they don't look at like all the other clones. They don't act like all the other clones. Uh, so I was not a, a, a huge fan of that, but I'll take any Star Wars content, any new Star Wars content. So I guess that's how I'm going to celebrate because I don't really think there's a baking thing to do to celebrate Star Wars. So I don't really have any cooking projects dedicated to today's event uh, to mark the, the day. Otherwise, just very busy. Just lots of things to do. Um, and we've got lots of things that are rolling out at the CDSN that we'll be talking about in the weeks and months to come. But I'm very happy to attend your workshop this coming Thursday and Friday because your personnel theme was always important and now more timely and more relevant given what's going on in Canada these days. So let's get to it. This was uh, the past week or two. I've seen a lot of announcements. And in the Twitterverse, anyway, there was a lot of frustration and about the announcements. And so the, the first announcement was that somebody who we interviewed on the podcast, General Carignol, is now Lieutenant General Carignol and is going to be Chief of Professional Conduct and Organizational Culture. What does that mean and, and where do you stand on this decision? I like the fact that someone at the very highest levels and who's commanding a lot of respect within the military is being tasked with this file and that there will be personnel and money allocated to solving the problem of sexual misconduct in the military and talking more broadly about professional culture and conduct. So I think that sends a strong signal. At the same time with 
any setting up of any new organization, there are a lot of questions about the scope of the mandate. How will it be staffed? Exactly how broadly it, the scope of the activities will be. So that also takes time. And, and when we look to the two announcements that were made, both uh, the appointment of Lieutenant General Jean Carignan as Chief of Military Conduct and Culture and the Arbour Review, which we'll get to in a moment, both of those things take time. And I think many observers are very impatient to see change implemented quickly. Obviously, you want to get the solution right, but it's not like the Canadian Armed Forces hasn't had time to think about it. You know, there was a Deschamps report uh, 2015. So there are a lot of very clear paths for action here. So my short answer to your question is that I do think it's necessary that an L1 organization is dedicating to coordinating all of the efforts that have been implemented to date when it comes to preventing and responding to sexual misconduct. I think it's important to pitch it more broadly as an organization that's tasked with professional conduct and culture because sexual misconduct is one manifestation of a problematic culture, but there are all kinds of policies, procedures, and processes that also need to be re-examined. And that's also, in my view, how you get broader buy-in from the organization. There are a host of long-standing grievances in the military about training, about leadership promotion and selection, about the career management system, about relocations and work-life issues. So this is an address. If you're, gonna, if, if you're going to be speaking more broadly about professional conduct and culture and reviewing existing policies, procedures, and processes, it's a good opportunity to have a broader conversation about other changes that should be made to the Canadian Armed Forces so that the well-being of service members is, is front and center in that conversation. So that's my initial reaction to it. The other aspect we saw in the news is with regards to the person of Lieutenant General uh, Jenny Carignan and whether this was the right career move for her. So if I think about what her career plan may have been, and if we believe what we're reading in the news about you know, the position of army commander having been her first choice in terms of her career progression, rather than being tasked with leading this new organization on professional conduct and culture. I would think it's it's unfortunate that because of the current scandals, a senior woman in the military's career plan gets changed. And she certainly has the, the street cred and the respect within the organization to take up the position of army commander and, and do a fantastic job. And that's an important historical milestone. So I'm a bit torn. If that is indeed the case, that personally and professionally, you know, she had her sights set on the role of army commander, then, then I think this is unfortunate. And that may be, and, and I do think there are other candidates that could have taken up that, that role and done a good job, uh, other senior women in the Canadian Armed Forces. But let me hear your thoughts. You've been following the conversation on Twitter a bit more closely. So when you say the reaction was quite negative on Twitter when the announcement came, what were some of the comments made and, and which ones resonated with you? Well, the one thing that came to mind is, is people refer to pink washing, which is the idea of you just do a, a little bit to include women to sort of make things look better. And so the example I, I always think of is that for one month a year, the NFL has their football players wear pink gloves and pink towels and pink shoes or whatever to sort of have people forget the fact that the NFL has a sexual abuse problem. And I'm not saying this is the same thing, but 
people did suggest that by putting the one of the most prominent women in charge of an organization that has, you know, how many people is she going to are going to be reporting to her? I mean, you call it an L1, which is a term I always get confused by, but it, it's not going to be the same as the other directorates within the military. It's, it's not going to have a lot of budget. It's not going to have the ability to direct the rest of the military. I mean, it, will it? I mean, where does this person fit into the chain of command? Is it a strictly advisory? It, it just seems like it's the least they can do is to create a, a body here and throw, throw a person at it and then have it be somebody who is well-respected, but it's like, okay, let's put our, or one of our most well-known women at it. That will solve the problem or that will attract the fire and attention away from these other problems. And I know that's not what it is. There's just more going on here, but I guess it speaks to a larger frustration I have. And this will be the segue to the the, the review that we're, we're going to be going through now, which is both of these kind of screamed as kicking the can down the road kind of, of decisions that Deschamps had the report that came out six years ago. And so what they could have announced this, this week was, okay, these things that we didn't implement from the Deschamps report, we're going to do now, and this is how we're going to do it. They didn't do that. I know they've been consulting widely with a lot of smart people in town and across the country about possible independent processes, inspector generals, empowered ombudsmen, things like that. There are models in the United States there's, that, that's emerging in the United States. There are models in Europe and elsewhere. And so they could have actually made a decision. They could have said, okay, we know we have a lot of expertise in-house and out-of-house and we've been, we've been thinking about this for the past couple months, and we're going to choose an option. Instead, they're going to defer it to a Supreme Court justice that was retired. And I've, uh, you know, Arbor was involved in the defense review a couple of years ago. She's a really talented, smart woman who will provide a, a keen perspective on this. But then she can make recommendations that they then ignore. There's, there's no, you know, guarantee that they're going to follow through on this. Is this all trying to push this past the next election? It, I just think that all of this was stuff that was the very least they could do. And it didn't really show a real commitment to doing something significant. I think they could have made decisions. One of the problems that we face right now, which we sort of alluded to, is we have this acting chief of defense staff. And what is his day job before this? It was chief of the army, right? And so the reason why Lieutenant General Carignan can't be named chief of the army is because we still have an acting chief of defense staff who's ordinarily the chief of the army. So maybe make a decision about that. And that will then clear the decks for the rest of those positions. It's kind of like what happened with the vice chief of defense staff, Norman. If, if you can't resolve that situation, then you have a, a rotating position there. And so I think we're making the same mistakes all over again, and we can't make a decision. It could be right now, the chief of the, the minister of defense, well, besides resigning, that would be my first choice. The second decision he can make is Art McDonald just will not ever have the moral authority to be chief of defense staff. We can investigate this all we want, but for the good of the service, he's going to have to step down. Let's appoint Air to be the chief of defense staff for the next three years or so, so that he, he can actually have time to take these, make these decisions and have, you know, think of more than the next month ahead uh, that he can start some, do some real planning, or if not, find somebody else to be chief of defense staff. I think that is a, a big decision that needs to be made sooner rather than just kicking that can down the road. And as a result, they can't make these decisions. And so I, I found I found this ought to be profoundly frustrating, and I wasn't the only one online. Now, my wife reminds me that Twitter isn't real life, mm -hmm. but my life is on Twitter, so. <laughs> these, these days. Uh, for the past uh, 10, 11, 12 years now, I guess. So I guess for me, the question is, is where do you stand on the Arbor review part of this? Does it make sense to do another review? Can we just take the previous review and implement it? Is this just more delay? I agree with you that a lot more change could be implemented on the basis of the last 
review. So going back to the Dijon report, I know there was talk about a lessons learned exercise, but a lessons learned exercise sounds too vague. It should be, you know, what's been implemented, what's, what hasn't been implemented successfully, and then how can we improve things in the short term? And, and sorry this, to interrupt, but and why things weren't implemented? We also need to know why, because that's part of the impediments to future reform is if we, why didn't we do this before that, you know, we have to deal with the, the short shortcomings of the past process. Sorry. No, no, I, you're, you're right to point this out. And, and so for the example of coming up with an independent reporting system that was brought up uh, six years ago. And so why wasn't it implemented? And now they're not asking Arbour to, to comment on the why it's needed, but the how it should be implemented. And it seems to me that with all of the expert testimony and the consultations that have been made, that's at least a piece where I would expect there to be you know, enough information and enough international best practices to come up with an independent reporting system immediately. Because the more you delay that, uh, the more you're leaving the calls for change that we're hearing on behalf of survivors and uh, victims unanswered. And I think to me, that's the most urgent thing uh, is responding to those calls for action and the, and the need for change as expressed by the victims and survivors. And so if we're thinking that's only going to happen in a 12 to 15 month time frame, then I just don't think that's good enough. There are thornier issues. I think certainly how allegations are investigated and there are broader questions about the military justice system that may take more time to look at, both through this review and through the other FISH review that more specifically deals with the military justice system. So on that front, yes, I think it will take more time. But when it comes to reporting, if survivors and, and victims don't feel safe to speak out and don't want to report, and that past policies have created a bit of a chilling effect through the duty to report, those are urgent changes to implement. So that's why I'm a little disheartened that certain items that were previously highlighted in the Deschamps the report just included as part of this review's mandate. The other part that I'm a bit ambivalent about is the sheer scope of this review's mandate. I mean, it covers so much from training to leadership selection and promotion. You know, it's really all policies, procedures, and practices that can have a direct or indirect bearing on sexual misconduct. And I agree that sexual misconduct needs to be framed broadly so that it captures the cultural problems with the organization. But really, I was really struck by how broad the, the scope of the mandate was, which then leads to that 12 to 15 month time frame. So I think what would have made sense would be to break down that mandate into chunks so that you, and, and maybe that's going to happen because there's talks about having rolling recommendations flow in for quicker implementation, but having a clear work plan where the review is broken down into clear chunks so that you know, it doesn't feel like a whole 12 to 15 month process might make sense here. I also trust Arbour's judgment. Okay, She's a, a, an, another su former Supreme Court justice. And I don't think that with her reputation being at stake with this particular mandate, that she would have just said uh, yes uh, very quickly and, and lightly. So I do think that you know, she probably thought carefully about the decision. 
alongside her her firm and the advice that she's given and she did not make this decision lightly so if she said yes it's because of an ambitious mandate that she's been given and because she truly believes that the changes that her recommendations can encourage would be truly far reaching and, and could be quite impactful you know this has been an ongoing challenge since they became in power somewhere along the way they should have realized that the Operation Honor wasn't working the way it was supposed to. There are other things to do. And I know they came up with a path to dignity, but you know there should have been some, some review a few years into it by the government itself to say, how are we doing? Are we achieving our objectives? And then go, wait, we didn't really do the, what the Deschamps report asked us to do. Why is that the case? And what are the things in the Deschamps report that might be might help us do things better? Duty rep- to report was always controversial. And it was probably obvious a couple of years ago that they needed to change the duty to respond, which is a bit different and gives more flexibility to those who are the survivors of, of, of misconduct and, and of abuses of power. And so I, I think that, that they could have acted faster on this. They didn't need to have it come to this. And so, you know, we go back to 2018 and say, okay, well, what did the minister know? Who told the prime minister's people? What did the prime minister's people do? That's what the news story is about. But, you know, three years ago was also a good time to think, okay, well, we've got this allegation and we don't know what to do with it. Maybe we should think about how to deal with these allegations and think about the process by that. Uh, because nobody should have been satisfied in 2018 about the options that either the minister had or cho- and chose to exercise or the options that he didn't have that he's claimed that he couldn't do anything about it. And so th- there should have been a, le- a moment in time that didn't require massive amounts of media exposure for them to think about this because it was supposed to be their priority. And that, that I think is just very, very frustrating. Mm-hmm. And I, I really think that the new position, the chief of uh, professional conduct and culture is to prevent that from happening again, because a lot of the initiatives you mentioned were happening in different parts of the armed forces. And who's coordinating all of those efforts? Who's overseeing progress on implementation from a whole of CAF perspective? And I think that was was very much missing, that the path was happening on, in one part of the organization with someone tasked with professional conduct. And then you had you know, a diversity strategy being developed elsewhere. And then you had military personnel command efforts being carried out. You have a curriculum review, you know, Mm -hmm. on the the PME front. So you had lots of things going on, all tying back to some of the recommendations made by Deschamps, but what was the overarching strategy and vision and how was it being monitored and coordinated and how is data being full of organization perspective? Those pieces were missing. And, And that's what I view the primary function of this new organization led, led by Lieutenant General Carignan is that there's you know, one very senior point of contact that will be answerable to all the changes that are being made and implemented and someone to oversee and coordinate those efforts. And this might be one of the casualties of having seven or so vice chiefs is because I would think the vice chief's job would have been to do a lot of the stuff that you just mentioned in terms of bringing all these different disparate pieces together. So maybe that, you know, maybe we might've made more progress had there been a little more continuity in that office. Mm-hmm. I'm just afraid that the current steps of the f- delaying decisions about the next CDS and all the rest of it will just create more churn that will lead to more people serving in offices for shorter year, uh, periods of time so that we can't make much progress. Speaking of discretion, we now have the CAF playing another role in the pandemic that we now see Canadian Armed Forces airlifting doctors and nurses, civilian doctors and nurses from where they're facing less pressure in the Atlantic provinces and moving them to Ontario, where the crisis is almost at its worst, although I guess Alberta is, is racing to get into the lead on that. 
and also having personnel from the CAF serve in these field hospitals and in other, other places as the doctors and nurses of Ontario are stretched to exhaustion and beyond by, by the pandemic. Uh, we've been rarely focusing on, on what the Canadian forces are doing in this pandemic. So I guess the question to you, Stephanie, is, is are you surprised by this? Is this appropriate? How does this fit into the larger pattern of things? Well, it's uh, the third time around, I think, that uh, provincial requests are, are coming out to the Canadian Armed Forces. And every time their, their role shifts a little bit based on what the needs are on the ground. I definitely think the, the response or the requests are, are measured and appropriate in this case. And we're likely to see them multiply. So you mentioned Ontario. Requests have also been made out of Nova Scotia. And, and you're right, they're likely to occur as well in, in Alberta. I'm also wondering about the pace of vaccination amidst the the troops uh, amidst the Canadian Armed Forces because certainly you know they are a priority group and and they are on standby to respond to additional requests so that seems to me to be a, a challenge as well logistically about getting your force vaccinated so they can respond to the request at home but also abroad. So we have seen outbreaks of COVID-19 in, in operations, most recently with the, the CAF training mission in Ukraine, which was suspended uh, mid-April after a surge in COVID cases. And uh, we saw previous examples of, of soldiers being infected with COVID-19 in Latvia. I, I also think about this broader issue of, of vaccinating military personnel and certainly that present, presents unique challenges when they're already deployed abroad. They weren't seen as necessarily a priority for vaccination when they were on, on deployment, but now suspending missions is the cost of not doing so. So no one likes to be sitting still. You know, you're away from your family to carry out a mission and you're sitting on a base because of COVID and that's gotta be frustrating. And certainly we, we heard a little bit about that in your feature interview with the, the commander of the Canadian contingent to the NATO poli air policing mission. Am I getting this right, Steve? That's right. Uh, the feature interview is with Lieutenant Colonel McLeod, who was the commander of the Air Task Force in Romania last fall and winter from, I guess, September to December. And so one of the things we did talk about was how the pandemic affected their operations. I guess I'm still struck by the idea of having, you know, I grew up watching the TV show MASH. So the idea of mm -hmm. having field hospitals, you know, randomly set up in, in, in Ontario to deal with this pandemic being, you know, serviced by military officers just to be very odd. And I, it's what's strange is, is that Canada doesn't seem to have other capacity to do this, that there's no FEMA out here to be doing that. So we constantly are going to the CAF and, and the CAF, this is the second time the CAF has been called out to Ontario, I believe. Uh, you know, we had the long-term healthcare facilities last year, and now we have uh, the field hospitals this year. And it's good that we have this resource, but I really wish we had someplace else to go to get this kind of help. But it makes sense that in a crisis, you call on anybody you can get to, to respond. And, and the one entity that has reserve people that can be thrown at a problem is the Kingdom Forces. I'm pretty sure that this will not have the bad blowback for Ontario that the previous did, because uh, the long-term healthcare facility intervention led to a report about how neglectful and abusive those places are. I don't think we'll see that same kind of bad news story spilling out of, of this particular intervention because I think the civilian doctors and nurses have been doing their damnedest over the past year and they're just at their limits. So I, I think that it makes sense. It's the, it's the third time the Canadian Armed Forces is called upon to, to assist in this crisis, but you're right that the second time that there are 
request emanating from the province. The, the, the second request was about assisting in the vaccine rollout and the whole op vector, which is still ongoing. But I, I'm also thinking about how this is impacting just the ability of the, the Canadian Armed Forces to train. So we're, we're seeing COVID-19 impacting training, large training exercises like Maple Resolve. So this will be a smaller Maple Resolve this year. Last year was entirely canceled. And I was struck by one of the statements made just recently, the Royal Canadian Air Force's Director General of Air Readiness saying that pilots are in danger of losing their edge because of uh, training restrictions. So we're, we're seeing also, I mean, I'm not saying this is because of the uh, requests that have been made on, on the CAF because of COVID-19, but certainly COVID-19 is, is impacting in lots of ways the ability of, of the CAF to, to train and, and respond to requests both at home and abroad. So this is a, an ongoing challenge for the organization, one that they'll have to manage for the foreseeable future. And of course, that continues to be unpredictable as the vaccination campaign continues across the country. Yeah, it would just, the this thing is just getting tougher and dragging onwards and there, we have no good choices in front of us and we just have to be patient and wait for our turn to get vaxxed a first or a second time and, and do all the right things to get through this. But one way to get through this is to talk to you, Steph. It's always a pleasure to catch up with you and get your perspective on things. What our listeners don't know is that we usually chat for a few minutes ahead of these podcasts just about other stuff. And it's always great to see what Steph's doing and, and to get her, her advice on what I'm doing. So that's one of the ways that I've been able to get through this is just talking to you and keeping in touch with my other friends. And we should just stay connected because it's so easy to be disconnected in this time frame. No, you're right, Steve. And, and same here. I, I, I value our little chats every second Tuesdays. And I did find your feature interview very uplifting too, I have to say, as I was uh, listening to it for our usual edits, I, I thought it was a great interview. And certainly with a lot of positive elements about Canada's contribution to that particular NATO mission. So, so that will be the uplifting part of the episode. That and also my recommendations for what to watch and read with my R&R segment. Have a great week, Stephanie. I'll see you on Thursday and Friday at the workshop. I'm sure I will learn a lot from the event you've organized. And uh, to everyone else, uh, you'll be hearing from her soon enough in two weeks, I guess. Excellent. Take care, Steve, and see you soon. We'd like to welcome Lieutenant Colonel David McLeod of the Royal Canadian Air Force to Battle Rhythm. Good afternoon, David. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me on the podcast. My pleasure. We wanted to talk to you in part because you were the commander of the Canadian mission to Romania this past year, and we've been sending a rotation of CF-18s to Romania for several years now. Could you explain what this mission is and why are we doing this? Yeah, so the Air Task Force Romania is part of Operation Reassurance, and that's uh, Canada's contribution to NATO uh, assurance measures, all a result of the 2014 annexation of Crimea and buildup of, of forces in the conflict in Ukraine. So what we're doing with the Air Task Force in Romania is uh, NATO-enhanced air policing. So what that means is we go and support air defense missions for various NATO countries, some of them have uh, air forces or fighter forces that can provide that uh, quick reaction alert capability that we're looking to give, and some of them don't. So, for example, Iceland has a standing NATO air policing mission. They don't have uh, any fighter jets for their defense force. 
In the case of Romania, they do have fighters. They fly the MiG-21. They also now have F-16s that they've purchased and they're bringing online. They're initially operational capable, but not fully operationally capable yet, not declared at least. So what we're doing there is augmenting their capability to patrol NATO's flank, if you will, over the, over the Black Sea. So we get set up there for a four-month rotation, and we've been going back for the same time frame for five years now, doing the September to December slot. When you say that you're helping guard NATO's flank, that I guess that means that you're intercepting a Russian aircraft? We do. And it's important to note it's a peacetime mission as well. So it's it's not part of necessarily crisis response. Uh, and it's not uh, part of the, the wartime mission for NATO. It is a peacetime mission. And what happens is that the sovereign airspace of Romania out over the Black Sea follows the standard international law of 12 nautical miles. But the Romanian controlled airspace, much like with Canada, the United States, and many other countries around the world, extends much farther than that into uh, international airspace and over international waters. But we, in NATO, we treat that as a basically like an air defense identification zone, if you will, kind of like what we do in North America, again, with the uh, United States and Canada. We have uh, air ADISs or air defense identification zones off the coast where basically we're saying to the international community, hey, if you fly in here without talking to us or without a flight plan, we reserve the right to go and send our aircraft up to intercept you and verify friend or foe, whether you have hostile intent and, and whatnot. So we basically fulfill that same role, but now on behalf of NATO member countries. So often we colloquially interpose you know, NATO sovereignty, which isn't technically a thing, but protecting the sovereignty of, of NATO airspace. But we also have to make sure we don't confuse that with the international airspace that's out over the Black Sea or out over the oceans that other countries can and do fly through. So often what happens is Russian Federation aircraft will fly through that international chunk of airspace that's controlled by Romania or other countries, but they won't file a flight plan and they won't be talking to air traffic control. And so that then triggers a, a military response on the NATO side. Uh, and when we're holding alert duty, then they'll scramble our jets. We'll go up, conduct an intercept through the control of the NATO CAOC and Control and Reporting Center. We'll identify that aircraft and usually escort it for a period of time, take some pictures, and, and then we'll return to base after that. Does the, the original Top Gun movie accurately describe this process? Yeah, completely. No, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's so much less dramatic than that, than what you see in the movies and on TV. Uh, and that's a good thing, right? Because we have a, a bunch of military capability armed, in some cases scrambled on short notice. So for example, if, if we're on duty that particular week or during that time frame, then we have armed fighters on a ground alert with air crew and ground crew ready to go at a moment's notice to mm -hmm. react. So when you get airborne, you still have a lot of adrenaline flowing. I mean, you, you've just put on your all of your flight equipment as fast as you possibly can. You've run to the aircraft. So you're probably out of breath by the time <laughs> you get to the air, aircraft, right? And you go through a rapid startup sequence and launch you know, you're, you're airborne before you know it in a lot of cases because it's all just practice routine. So there's there's a lot of adrenaline going by the time you get airborne. But uh, we train so much for these situations and through these tactics procedures that it all remains very professional and very benign. And it really supports that aspect of it being a peacetime mission as well. So we certainly in our interactions and in, in our missions just saw professional activity every time we were going airborne. And what I mean by that is, you know, if we go up and intercept an aircraft, we're not expecting it to maneuver wildly or aggressively. And they don't, you know, they're flying fairly steady and, and calm and controlled through the airspace. Mm -hmm. uh, so we do the same thing. We come up and we intercept them nice, calm and steady 
take some pictures, you know, usually you're close enough that you can wave and, and they wave back or, or vice versa. You know, there's a, a certain mutual professional respect that exists there, I think. So it's nice to see that it's all very safe. Well, that's good to hear. Cause like, again, as you suggest, suggested, the movie suggests that these, these, these situations are fraught, but I guess the question is in your four, four months, how many times did you guys have to scramble to intercept Russian aircraft? So we scrambled, I would say, around half a dozen times. Mm -hmm. uh, we conducted one intercept to completion. And so often what would happen is, depending on the situation, you know, there might be an aircraft coming from Ukrainian airspace or Bulgarian airspace, and we might get sent up just to, it may have already been identified, so we may get scrambled, but just to do what we call a CAP or a combat air patrol. So we'll, mm -hmm. we'll orbit in place, ready to go. Obviously, that's a lot faster when you're already airborne and, and uh, ready to intercept when you know the aircraft of interest is just outside the airspace or close by. And so sometimes we would even just go up and cap. And then once the uh, aircraft of interest was out of the area, then we might get cleared to just do a, a quick training mission between the two jets that, that we would send airborne and then land once uh, we reach a lower, lower level of gas. And, and then uh, we do what we call turning the jets. So we land, refuel, reset, and then we're ready to go for the next call. Okay. And so obviously this, this part of the mission is the one that gets the most visibility and we'll get occasionally get reported back home. What are the less publicized parts of this mission? So I look at the mission as kind of having two tranches to it. One is the easier part to describe. That's the deterrence mission. And that's what we've just been talking about. That's with the, what we call the QRA, the quick reaction alert. We have a, a pseudo random schedule where we just don't want to be predictable. We're not just going to do week on week off. We'll mix it up a little bit so that uh, it's unpredictable when we're on duty, but that everything we just talked through, that's the deterrence part. So we're just showing presence. We're, we're uh, reacting to any incursions into the controlled airspace and showing our will to ensure the security of the Alliance. The assurance part is a little bit more complex and <laughs> there we sort of delve into uh, you could go down the road of talking about defense diplomacy if you wanted to. We really focus on the terminology of building partner capacity. So on some CAF missions, that's very formalized through global affairs. There's, there's money for infrastructure development and engagement, professional military education reform, and things like that. I think Op Unifier in the Ukraine is a really good example of a mission that has a, a really building partner capacity focus. Within a, a NATO member country, it's going to be a little bit different because obviously to become a NATO member, Romania had to meet certain reform requirements within their, their country writ large, but also within their military. So here we focus on taking our knowledge and capabilities and we try and hand down or, or pass off what we can to help increase our NATO allies' ability to, in this case, do the air defense mission. So earlier I mentioned their F-16s. I've been fortunate enough to go to Romania a number of times. I was with one of the original groups in 2014 when we deployed. I've been back to do an exercise in 2016 and then this air policing mission this time. So I've seen them go from just having the MiG-21 to just getting the F-16. Now they've been operating the F-16 for a few years. So each time we come back, we're able to engage with the Romanian Air Force and pass on some of our experience and knowledge, for example, in this case on how to tactically employ uh, four ships, so groups of four F-16s instead of the, the basic element of two F-16s. So we take our senior weapons instructors, we integrate them with their squadrons a little bit, pass on some of that knowledge. We also do it at the local level with the firefighters, the security forces at the base, just handing on off uh, tricks of the trade and, and getting that good collaboration and integration that I think is so important to NATO's success writ large. It's, it's all about how the Alliance works together and supports each other. So that's the part that 
that changes every time. One of the, the bigger examples of that building partner capacity and engagement is uh, this past rotation we exercised within Bulgarian airspace with the Bulgarian Air Force, the US Air Force, Romanians, and ourselves as part of many scenarios that we were flying from an air defense standpoint. So, mm-hmm. uh, and again, we build on that every year that we go back, we try and make that just a little bit bigger, a little bit better. Uh, we get their uh, joint terminal air controllers involved in training as well. So they're, uh, that's the guys in the movie that you see on the ground with the radio calling in the airstrikes. And uh, we rehearse that with them, both what we call dry. So we do dry attacks where we're not actually dropping weapons. And then we'll do live close air support as well, where we brought a bunch of concrete weapons. So inert bombs, laser guided, GPS guided bombs, 20 millimeter ammunition for the gun and the aircraft. And we spent a period in October where we brought over some Canadian joint terminal air controllers. They integrated with some Romanian army controllers as well. And we spent a week doing day and night close air support with them. Uh, So it's good for our army controllers, they get to reset their currency and do some training in a completely new environment for them. And it also gives them different exposure. The F-18 is a very capable CAS platform, the MiG-21 not so much. And I couldn't say how much they're doing CAS with the F-16 right now. So all those little things really just help to boost the, the capabilities and provide good training opportunities for the Romanians while we're there. I guess it was a little more complicated this time around with COVID. How did COVID change your battle rhythm? How you you did this stuff? How do you train with these folks? It's one thing to be in separate cockpits, but you're mentioning stuff that was going on on the ground. So how does it work in a COVID environment? Well, even the airborne training relies very heavily on face-to-face engagement traditionally. And so obviously we had to curtail a lot of that. It also meant that some of the activities that we would have done in the past, for example, previous rotations have actually flown some of the jets up to Latvia mm-hmm. to do close air support with the Enhanced Ford Presence Brigade up there that has a very strong Canadian component and leadership. We weren't able to do that this year because we determined that some of those farther afield efforts for building partner, partner capacity and alliance engagement were just a bridge too far and too risky in the COVID environment. Talk about going as far as Latvia, you have the risk of aircraft having an airborne malfunction. They have to divert maybe somewhere along the way, or they get stuck up in Latvia, or the possibilities are almost endless on uh, on things that, that can go a little bit sideways that you then have to react to. So we kept that focus. We did a lot more via telephone video conferencing where we could where we might have done some training with, uh, for example, with the Romanian F-16 pilots as a whole squadron, then instead we sent our two senior most flight instructors and we sent them along to do some integration with a very small group of their pilots. So that kind of a teach the teacher kind of uh, idea so that they can then go spread that knowledge within there. On the base itself, we had some pretty strict COVID uh, protocols. So everything that we're doing here in Canada, mask wearing, two meter separation, reducing group size, We had that baked into the plan from the beginning. We started planning the mission back in January of 2020, but uh, obviously come March, you know, we we had enough lead time to adjust how we were going to deploy and and incorporate all of those measures and make room for the unknowns as well, right? So that we'd have enough flexibility to keep getting the mission done at a low risk to the force. So sometimes that meant that we were able to do those face-to-face engagements with the MiG-21 pilots indoors with proper precautions. There were times when the uh, COVID incidence rate in Romania was just too high in the uh, November, December timeframe that that stopped and it was all 
virtual engagement or just slowing down and, and taking things at a slower pace so we could keep doing some of that training, but in a way that was safe for everybody. Yeah, I was just thinking that compared to army training and at least when you know a you're when you're in the skies you're flying in separate aircraft so that, that the social distancing is not a problem up in the skies and then i guess uh, what you could be doing is a lot of your training could be down on the tarmac where you're talking to people outside and that that's less risky than you know having you know 300 infantry troops inside of a lecture hall so i mean you could still engage with the Romanians. you just had to be a little more careful about how you communicated Absolutely. Yeah. If you're inside of two meters airborne, then the, you probably have a different problem on your hands, unfortunately. <laughs> but joking aside, though, you're, you're absolutely correct. It, it is a smaller training audience for sure. You know, instead of some 300 odd uh, infantry soldiers, you know, to support four to six CF-18s, you've got a contingent of, you know, 140, 150 people. Mm -hmm. um, so you haven't even reached that same size just to support getting those aircraft airborne. Mm -hmm. And often we were only sending two aircraft airborne at a time. And that's just a a resource management piece so that we make sure that that uh, we're not burning through our resources faster than we can be resupplied while we're there. And so I guess this means that for your this particular tour, you didn't leave base at all? For the most part. So that was actually one of the tough things to manage, if you will. I don't know if manage is quite the best word, but we'll stick with it for now. We went in with the, the starting philosophy that everyone would be restricted to base for the mm -hmm. beginning until we had a really good sense of what the situation was on base, what measures were in place, and uh, what the situation was like in the local area. So previous rotations have been able to take some R&R &R time on the weekends when they're not in the QRA, go and see Brand Castle or Dracula's Castle, neat mm. tourist attraction to be able to go see. But I mean, that's a five hour drive away, six hour drive away, depending mm. on traffic and, and stuff. So clearly way too risky to do that kind of local cultural uh, engagement. But through September and into October, the COVID situation was actually on a continuously improving trend in Romania. So by early October, we were confident that we had the right connections locally to understand the situation and a good sense of where the risks lay. So we could let people off the base, at least in the immediate area around the base. So we're not in Constanza proper. It's in a town called Mihail Kloganichenu, which is about 20, 30 minutes north of Constanza. Small town, you know, maybe 10 to 20,000 people max. And, uh, but a few nice little restaurants just outside of the base that people could go and ex at least experience a little bit of the Romanian culture and food mm -hmm. and de-stress a little bit. We can probably talk about that a little bit more in a bit here as well. So it allowed people that sense to sort of set work aside their shift gears in their mind a little bit and, uh, and relax away from the in-your-face military aspect of the deployment, which was otherwise there all the time. Now, obviously, when you go on a deployment like in Afghanistan or in, in Iraq or Kuwait, I mean, you're, you are basically limited to the base anyway. So the difference here being that going into a, a mission in mainland Europe, you're not really expecting to be limited to the base. You're mm -hmm. expecting things to be a little bit more relaxed because the threat should be lower. So that was a little took a little bit of work with folks just to remind them that, yeah, yes, we are in mainland Europe. Um, it is a safe place to be, except that COVID. So that lasted for, I'd say, about three and a half weeks. And then I mean, right around the same time as the, the second wave, if we'll call it that, was, was hitting in Canada, mm -hmm. the same thing was happening in Romania. Thankfully, my medical team with the Air Task Force was plugged in enough with the local authorities and with the Americans who we were co-located with. There's an um, area support group there that has a rotational force of U.S. Army soldiers armored mm -hmm. and, and uh, regular infantry that rotate through there. So we, I mean, we're sharing the base with some four to 500 uh, mm -hmm. 
of our closest American friends while we were there as well. We were able to be just ahead of that wave of rapidly increasing cases that we initially had no cases on the base. We were able to shut things down, keep people restricted to base and keep relative safety. Unfortunately, that didn't last too long because a lot of the services on base are contracted Excuse me, as well. So the dining facility, the gym facilities, morale and welfare facilities, a little coffee shop on base for us to use, little little post exchange or PX shop at, these are all staffed by local Romanians. So these people are all going home at night and interacting in the local community. I mean, they're trying to stay as, as uh, safe as they can. But when the numbers were getting up over, and there were some days where daily case numbers of new cases in Romania were over 10,000 new cases a day for the country. So it got really quite serious. Uh, we ended up getting some cases on the base. So we started shutting down base services from the American support side. They were shutting down various things, started with the gym, the shop shut down, and we shut down the dining facility for about a week. So I think most of our troops would probably characterize that as one of the lower points of the deployment. So were there any other surprises besides the the COVID experience? Because you'd been to Romania before. So was this pretty much the same thing or was it really just the COVID thing that was different? Or was there anything else that happened that that sort of was new to you in, in your Romanian experiences? COVID was the, the biggest piece. The other piece that was new for me was the level to which we were working to increase our involvement with the Bulgarian Air Force. Mm-hmm. That was a new aspect to the mission. It's important to note that just how small the airspace is there. I mean, to put it in perspective, our training areas here north of Bagaville, which are smaller than the training areas north of the base in Cold Lake in Alberta, our training is here are still bigger, probably twofold than the chunk of airspace that we're patrolling off the coast of Romania. So that's a significantly different size airspace to be operating in. And things can change there so rapidly that we're trying to, to work agreements that allow us to be able to move back and forth between Bulgarian airspace or Bulgarian controlled airspace mm-hmm. and the Romanian controlled airspace, just to make things a little bit smoother from an operations standpoint. That was a really interesting opportunity to be involved in those discussions. And that's where you actually see the nuts and bolts of the alliance at work, where mm-hmm. each country has their sovereign interests, obviously. NATO, as, as a military side of the NATO organization, wants to try and, and come up with the best command and control relationship that'll allow us to meet the military goals of the alliance, all while respecting these, these sovereign interests and goals of each member nation. So mm-hmm. you know, we were there as either observers or just advisors as the current air policing nation to discussions between Romania and Bulgaria. Really appreciative that both those, those nations and those air forces allowed us to, to participate in that way so that we could provide that perspective and expertise, but also really really interesting and eye-opening to just see that diplomacy and that interaction mm-hmm. at work. And I guess one of the big differences between your previous tours in Romania and Eastern Europe is this time you were the, you were the commanding officer. So did that lead to sort of seeing things from a different perspective or were you just too busy in the day-to-day to actually think about the fact that, you know, you're seeing things from a, a slightly more operational or strategic perspective? There were days that were a little bit too busy, but the uh, I hadn't really thought about it ahead of time, but that I would chalk that up to having done a couple of years of staff college and um, and really starting to take an interest in the international relations piece and the, the policy piece as I got to the, the lieutenant colonel rank level. So as a captain and as a major, yeah, I was focused on flying, right? And, mm-hmm. uh, and that's, that's where my captains and my majors need to be focused. My majors need to understand what's happening at the lieutenant colonel and higher level so they know 
how that's going to affect them and what they're doing at the tactical level. But I need my captains focused on flying and, and being the best fighter pilots that, that they can be while they grow their military knowledge in the background. So for me, it was eye-opening just how much engagement there is. I had engagements with the chief of the Romanian Air Force, the chief of the Bulgarian Air Force, the uh, NATO CAOC commander, as well as the Romanian deputy chief of the Air Force and Air Operations Center commander. So these are all general officer level engagements that in my mind, ahead of the mission, I'd, I'd see them a little bit at the beginning and a little bit at the end, right? Mm -hmm. You know, there's, there's some constant engagement that, that goes as a part of this, because as the commander, you're also the, you know, the ambassador, if you will. I mean, obviously, Canada has an ambassador to, to Romania, and I don't mean to take that role by any stretch of the imagination, but for the RCAF and for the CAF, uh, we become the largest contingent representative in Romania, and that has a, an impact as well. And you're also the guy who carries the red card in case if somebody asks you to do something, you're the one who's supposed to say yes or no, right? Yeah, effectively. But the working relationship is such that you rarely have to have to throw your weight around, if you will. You know, working with the Romanians is an absolute pleasure. They're very professional, very proud nation, really professional force. They're used to supporting these air policing detachments now. The mm -hmm. deputy base commander has been there for quite a while through a couple of base commanders, I think, by this point. Uh, and so he is in fine sync with our needs from the RCAF perspective and how we like to operate. Uh, and we talked a lot, especially in this environment, we talked a lot about how do we protect our people? How do we protect the force? Mm -hmm. um, how do we keep everyone healthy in an environment that's rife with disinformation, in an environment with competing interests and maybe priorities in some cases, you know, as the air policing detachment we have our own priorities. The American forces there have their mission set and their priorities. The Romanians are trying to, to well, not trying. I mean, they are they are effectively brokering between different groups, and you know, it's uh, it's not a small feat. Is there anything that you learned in uh, your time in Romania that you're going to take to your next assignment? Things that that you might not have learned otherwise. I think relearned is probably the a good description for just relearning how resilient our folks can be in the face of adversity and when tasked to do a job and when we have a mission to do the just sheer willpower and dedication to get that mission done despite many risks and many uncertainties uh, because of what, what we were experiencing deployed our families were experiencing the same or worse in terms of restrictions, lockdowns, kids no longer going to school, maybe they are going to school, all that uncertainty. When you look at our mission, life was simple in, in some respects. We're deployed. We don't have to, don't quote unquote, we don't, don't have to worry about the family stuff to a certain extent. You're not making lunches or wondering if you have to tell your boss that you can't work tomorrow because you have to keep the kids at home now because daycare mm -hmm. closed and, and whatnot, you know? So um, I think that took its own toll on our folks with, with families back home while we were deployed, as well as just the toll of ups and downs of locking things down and restrictions and rules in place while deployed as well. But it really impressed me. And I, I still think that some of our folks might not realize until you know, even a few months down the road from now, how important it is what we did, showing that we could deploy with extremely minimal risk. I mean, we had zero COVID cases within our task force, despite mm -hmm. there being a number of cases on base and within uh, the American contingent, as well as with the Romanian uniform members and, and the civilian contractors. It wasn't until right at the very end where we had a, a couple cases and thankfully we were able to contain that. And I'm really proud of them. And I, I really hope they're proud of themselves too. It's really great to be able to work through all of those challenges and still get the job done. And I guess since this is the, you know, the fourth or fifth rotation through and probably what the second or third of your, your unit, do you have to continue to explain to the Romanians what an Alouette is and what a threat it is to threaten to pluck your adversary? 
Well, it's a little easier for us with the with four three three squadron Latipic because our mascot's the, uh, the the porcupine. But uh, so so they get that one a little bit easier. Our motto is Kisi uh, So uh, what does that mean? I'm sorry, my French is not very good. No worries. Uh, loosely translated, that means basically if you come after us, you're going to get stuck. Okay. Um, so hence the you know the the natural defenses of of the porcupine we even had a few that were living in the in the bushes and trees around our op center which was kind of cool so mm. they were unofficial mascots i think of the squadron deployed and you're now the ceo of the again of the squadron based in bagoville do you know what your next job is I do not know what my next job is yet. No, I have one more year to go in, in this job. And, you know, right now our focus here on the base is just on making sure that we are able to, to train effectively and safely in the COVID environment and still conduct our NORAD mission. Between the two squadrons here in Bagotville, 425 and 433 squadron, we have a, a long and storied history of being able to work together and combine our resources where needed to get the mission done. And that's one of the awesome things that we're doing right now is we're, we're working closely together to sync up our resources so that even with restrictions and crew size and gathering and what have you to, to protect all of our people from the coronavirus, we're still able to, to get the jets out there on the line and do the critical training that we need to get our fighter pilots ready for the next deployment, whether that's air policing again in the future. I think it's a, a cold lake squadron that's going to deploy to Romania this summer for the next detachment mm-hmm. or whatever the next mission may hold. Well, that's great. And I guess as a CEO of the squadron, you can still get to fly a fair amount. I get to fly. I also have to do all the paperwork. So I fly less than uh, than my majors, but I still get to fly once or twice a week, keep my skills sharp and improving as well, which is uh, really important. And it definitely takes the edge off all the paperwork side of the job as well. Well, I wish I could fly. Uh, I've got, this is grading season. So it's all paperwork now for the next month or so. And no, I can't jump in a plane anytime too soon. Really glad to have you talk to us, Lieutenant Colonel McLeod. Good luck managing your, your squadron in these difficult times. I, I wish you luck in the, the next patrol and the next job. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. Thanks again for having me uh, on the podcast today. It's an absolute pleasure. Thanks again. For this week's R&R segment, I was inspired by my, the listings on Amazon to go back in time to The Faculty, which is a funny horror movie about, well, uh, the, the faculty of a high school, if I remember correctly. It turns out to be not what it seems to be. And it features all kinds of interesting people, including Jon Stewart in a dramatic role, a comedic dramatic role. And so I recommend The Faculty. A newer movie is Love and Monsters. It's about a guy who in the post-apocalyptic environment decides to go on a long hike through hostile terrain. The, popu- the population of, of the world's rep- uh, bugs have beca- and reptiles have become bigger and more dangerous as a result of stuff. Anyway, so he's going through all this territory to get to the girl he, he loves. And uh, it's an interesting adventure and an enjoyable movie. Finally, one thing I've been catching up on is Superstore. It's a TV show that was on NBC and now is on Netflix that is about folks at a department store, a Walmart type place or Zellers or whatever. And it's it's funny. It's it's a half hour. It's a good to to do to watch while treadmilling. So those are my recommendations for this week. Have a have a good week. Be safe. Be patient and take care of yourselves. We'd like to hear your questions and your comments. And so please send them to us at Twitter address at CDSN RCDS. 
or email them to cdsn.rcds at outlook.com. Thank you.